Hey everybody, this week on Nest Realty Sweat the Details, we were joined by Dean Cottrell. He is an Executive Vice President of T360, a California-based management consultancy in the residential real estate brokerage industry. We talked commonalities of successful brokerages, what to look for in real estate brokerage leaders, technology's evolution and impact on the belly-to-belly nature of real estate, and what detail brokers should be sweating as we enter a brave new world of real estate. We really loved this conversation. We hope you did too. So we're here with uh, with Dean Cottrell, who's Executive Vice President of T360. Welcome, Dean. We really appreciate you spending some time with us today. Jonathan, appreciate it. Uh, good to be here. Seeing you. you. Dean and I have known each other for, I, I probably should have looked back a little closer, but probably six or seven years now we've we've known each other. How long have you been, have you been with T360? Six years. I'm in my sixth year. Sixth year. All right. So yeah. I, I just about nailed it. Um, <laughs> so, you know, as we get started, Dean, I'd love to hear, you know, and, and I'll say this. You know, Dean is a is a true you know brokerage pro. He has a tons of experience across the board from you know from the past of running brokerages to today working with T three sixty. I'd love to hear just kind of a quick recap of like tell me kind of bringing me back to the beginning. How'd you get into brokerage and talk to me a little bit about your journey um, to kind of get where you are now where today. Okay. Great. Um, it's, I always say that's a great way to start because it gives everybody a sense of the lens I look through when I'm when I'm communicating to somebody on something going on in their world. So my background, I actually born and raised in Pittsburgh, uh, got an accounting degree. Um, but when I came out of college and I moved down to Washington, D.C., because the job market was better than it was in Pittsburgh at the time. This is 1989. And um decided I want to get into buying investment properties. So I started getting by snail mail. At the time, it was the only mail out there. Uh, we'd get uh, these lists that come in about homes in foreclosure. And I'd be driving on after work. I was a field accountant for a construction company building a smokestack, 700-foot smokestack in Baltimore. And so I was doing the books for that. And at, and I'd get off. In the summer, we got off early because the heat. We'd start early and finish about 1 o'clock two o'clock. And then I would drive around, knock on doors and go look at properties and see what we could potentially buy. Now, I didn't have two nickels to rub together, but I found some people who did. And so we put some deals together, bought some homes at the uh, courthouse steps. And so that's how it got me started. I got really fired up about it. I enjoyed the uh, entrepreneur piece of it. And also that the income is really derived from my effort and time versus the accounting position where it was going to take me so many years. You know, I have to work hard and perform, right? But then you get to another position and another years, another position. And, you know, I'm from a family of accountants. My dad was a partner in an accounting firm and I have three brothers and they're all bean counters. So I was like, so numbers come easy, but it was like not exciting at all. So long story short, I go to a community college, got a real estate license at night in Montgomery County right outside of Washington, D.C., near Rockville, Maryland, and um, started moving into real estate full-time and did that about six months to a year out of college and um, haven't looked back. I was eight years of selling. I went through GRI, CRS. I thought education was a great way to improve my ability to be a professional. I also felt like I was sitting with my mom and dad when I was talking to consumers, buyers and sellers, mostly sellers, and I wanted some designations to really kind of give some weight to the, my knowledge and my um, level of, of sophistication in the business. And then I, um, eight years in, my daughter was born. And as some of you guys might know, you tie things to your personal life and how things you know change. 
So my daughter was born, who is now 27, and I decided I want a little more time on weekends. I was doing six open houses a month. I had a primary market of 5,000 properties I was marketing to on a monthly basis. And I had a lot of listings coming out as a real strong listing agent, but I want a little more um, weekend time. So I was thinking about going into pharmaceutical sales or something like that. Long story short, uh, Jim Weikert left New Jersey. The first time he ever left New Jersey, he went into the DC market and he purchased a Prudential franchise that was called Prudential Preferred Properties. And this was in 1996. And I was in that office when he purchased it. And so it became Weikert uh, from Prudential. There's 55 offices around DC, Washington, DC at the time. So I switched to yellow. And then about six months later, they offered me a management position to run a sales office. So I did that for about three years, learned a lot. And then um, one of the executives left, went to Long and Foster and I get a phone call and I they invited me to come over and run their Severna Park office, which is north of Annapolis, Maryland. So I went over there and, and went to um, work for Long and Foster. One of the best things that happened to me in my career was in the very beginning, they had a consultant they were working with on recruiting interview track. And so they had already gone through, and at the time, I think it was about 180 offices uh, Long and Foster had. So they've gone through the bulk of everybody in one big group. And it had a small group of around 10 managers, some from Virginia, some in Maryland. And I became part of that group. And it was a really great group. There was a number one profit office in, in Long Foster was in that. Val August ran it out of Fair Oaks, Virginia. We had Paul Foster, the son of Wes Foster in it. Long story short, it was freaking awesome. And uh, I learned an interview track. Um, and just like enlisting homes, and hopefully this will resonate with those who are watching this, when I was out meeting with a seller, I could do it in a street corner. I could do it in the house, the kitchen, anywhere, because I had my listing presentation down. Uh, interview track, recruiting-wise, I didn't have it down. I, I know I, I was good at sharing value and going through that process, but I didn't have a real system in place. And this is one of the things that we'll talk about or I'll bring up in a second as towards successes. So that system really enabled me to pin my ears back and say, this is it. So my first year after doing that, I recruited 46 agents to a 50-50 split. And I took that office from 20 agents to over 100 in a very short period of time and over a million dollars in profit from a loss. And so that launched me a few years later to NRT. So NRT, I went over there to run real estate companies. So I started in Baltimore. A couple of years later, I ran the Mid-Atlantic, which includes D.C. and um, so a little bit of Delaware. We did some West Virginia business and Pennsylvania business and Virginia. And then I took over um, and became what's called the group president, which I oversaw from Georgia through Delaware. It was a 4,000 agent operation. Uh, we did about $10 billion in sales and we had multiple divisions along with mortgage title, warranty, insurance, commercial, resort rentals, property management. So that was all that. So that's like a deep breath, right? And take a breath. And then I moved into consulting. So then I moved over to work with T3 and run our brokerage and team consulting division. So now I work with teams and brokerages across, it's all C-level executive support. So we're not in the, the agent space and agent training, things like that. We're in the leadership area and supporting leaders and running more efficient, more profitable companies. So a short question, a long answer. So <laughs> well, look, it's great perspective. And I think that, you know, you, We've talked about some of this before, but, you know, accounting, you know, how many people have been like accountants and have become great salespeople and then kind of moved into management. And I think that's a that's a great, um, you know, unique uh, skill set to bring to the brokerage world. And it also doesn't surprise me that 
with your accounting background, you've kind of built systems in, in place. And it, that's a you know an aspect, I think, of the brokerage world that's lacking as, yeah. as I talk to broker owners across the country and even and even agents um, that systems is, is, is sometimes a problem because you've said this many times and I probably have stolen this from you, but you know, a lot of us in the, in the real estate world are like squirrels that we're just kind of bouncing from one end to the other. And so having right. those systems in place is like, you know, so important. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, along those lines, I mean, you right now work with, um, broker owners and leaders across the U.S. and Canada, and in all sizes, big, small, and something maybe we'll talk about here in a little bit. But what are the commonalities of, of successful brokerages or leaders that you see? Uh, you know, people have that maybe are separating them from from the rest of the pack. What are maybe one or two things that you're seeing across the board? Is like you, you got to be doing this. So. It's in the number one leadership leaders are what separate that I always call the leadership X factor, the X factor in an organization. You can put tools in a box and have great tools and try to sell the tools, but the leader is ultimately going to be the magnet. It's going to be the amplifier of those tools of that mission of the um, su- success of that organization. And I'll give you an example. You can find one organization in one market being number one and just owning that market. And then you go and have the same tools, same brand in another market, and it's nowhere close to the to the number one spot, right? It's you say it's in the bottom, just to make a point here. And the difference is leader, the leadership. So that is number one on this list for me. And number one in the fact is those leaders that are really following that success, that magnetic piece where they attract a lot of talent, retain talent. Um, and magnets do repel things too. So, right, we have one side that attracts and you have a repel piece in a magnet. And frankly, we don't want to attract everybody into our organizations. There are some people that are just not the right fit. Uh, so I'm not all about, hey, bring everybody in. I'm nowhere close to that. Uh, there are people that fit and people that don't fit into an organization. And part of that is what is your process to go through it? But talking about leadership, it's the leaders that consistently go out and push themselves to be better. And that's a real simplified way to say it, because. Uh, but that's the uh, that's the bottom line truth. If you push yourself to be better and try to figure out this business and figure out, frankly, yourself too, because part of this is we're human beings, and it is like Jim White, you say it's a belly to belly business. It still is, even with all the technology. Ultimately, someone's going to have to feel comfortable talking to you, whether it's on Zoom these days or whether it's face to face. The importance is that. People feel like you don't have a chip on your shoulder. Your wall is lower. Your 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 level of confidence it's humble, not overconfident, but you're humble in your knowledge and your abilities to support them in whatever they're looking to do. That is magnetic. That is something that attracts great talent. And when you couple that with systems, strategy, and things along those lines, because you can't you can have all that, but if you're not going to start. Uh, what's the old quote? You know, if you you could be everything, but if you're standing still, you're going to get run over. <laughs> I'm going to butcher that completely, but yeah. you know what I'm talking about. Uh, so you know what? If you you can have all those wonderful traits, uh, and you can be doing things in your personal life, but on the business side, you've got to systemize. You've got to look at your business and say, how can I? What's my strategy? Where am I going in this business? And then break it into like you know, and we do this exercise, Jonathan. We strategic intent. 
where are you now? Where do you want to go? Let's create a roadmap. And then what's that first step in front of that process? What are the projects? Things like that. Another good analogy in this sense is like, um, I heard this while ago, I like it. It's like, I think at night, real dark, I uh, can't see anything outside, you're in a car and you're in an area, you have no idea where you are, okay? So you don't know this road at all. And it's like the strength of the headlights, right? As a leader, if you're constantly pushing yourself to understand what's going on and as a leader and being more comfortable, confident, you've got these incredible headlights going out. You've got the beat, the rack on top. That's additional lights going everywhere. And you can see further down the road. And so when a corner is coming, like a market change, like we're experiencing now, you see that coming. You have some sense of it's coming and you're ready to start making adjustments because you're much more in tune with you as a leader and your organization and your drive. If you've got like very little dim headlights, you haven't been keeping up with your you know, maintenance and things like that, meaning you haven't been continuing to work on yourself and work on your business and streamline and systemize your business, your headlights are weak. You can't see anything until it's almost too late. You're reacting to the market more so than seeing things coming and predicting and leaning into the curves as, uh, you know, just keeping going with that analogy. So Dean, if I can, if I can move to one, I'm just, I'm trying to, I'm trying to put together all these different things you're, you're chatting about. And one of the things I'm, I'm recognizing is, you know, within our organizations, we are so focused on salespeople because that's the that's really the fuel behind our business. And mm -hmm. salespeople so frequently do not make great managers. So being able to move into that leadership position, you've you've obviously demonstrated a, a very different role from your years of selling to moving into you know NRT and and Weikert and other places. But you know, in terms of you also said that leadership and and franchises and organizations can have all these processes in place and tools, but if you've got the wrong people at the at the helm, you know, you can be number one in one market and number 28 in, in out of 29 in another. Um, what are those, how are you identifying from the sales team? How did you in, in your leadership positions or within the organizations that you were part of that leadership of, how are you looking at succession planning and how are you identifying the people who are within the sales organization who can successfully move into that magnetic role no. what are what are those skill sets so um i always liked to have uh, I, internal growth is fantastic if you can bring people internally up through your sales organization to move into leadership roles that's good because they're already bleeding your colors they already carry your flag um so that's a great way to do it to pinpoint who those talented people are now a lot of people you know it's not like they're going to arrive and they're they're going to be made right you you they have to be built you have to help them discover and push but to that what are the core principles or core things that i saw to have great success in moving leaders into leadership roles and then helping them become better leaders um empathy that was one that wes foster was really something you know do they have a sense of empathy um that was really something he'd have everybody take the disc test if it, you didn't have a level of empathy that met a certain level and he was not interested, he didn't feel that was good, good fit. And I, I agree with that on the empathy side. I also loved mentors. These are agents who would support new agents and help them build their business because um, leadership is all about supporting growth, no matter where somebody is, whether they're a top agent or they're just starting out. So a mentor gave me some really good indications. So trainers slash mentors, you can see how they work with people. 
um, how they support people, the responsiveness. Because as we all know on this screen here, when someone reaches out to you, an agent, they need you, you want someone who's responsive, who's knowledgeable, you know, who's professional, high level of integrity, all those things. So those are some early signs of talent that could be something. Um, I always also say, and this is, um, I'll kind of end it here, is successes. You know, typically successful people don't fall out of a tree and one day become successful. They typically have an internal drive that has helped them be successful in all walks of life. So I one of the questions I would always ask in interview pro, interviews is, you know, give me a sense. And you have to soften this. You have to kind of curtail the questions so you can get information out of somebody. Um, so if you looked at your life in hindsight and kind of looked through at all the things you've been doing from the day you were born to where you sit right now, what are some of the biggest successes? What are the things that you're most proud of? And I know it's going to be your kids. I, I get that, you know, my kids as well. But on a professional side or a personal side, what are some things that you've done in your life that you like, you know what, you want to check that box. That's fine to share and don't feel like, a, you know, you're going to be humble and not share things. I'd really like to know what are some successes that you feel really good about that you've done. Now, if no one has anything to say in there, that that's an indication that maybe they're they're they're, they're still up in the tree and they're not going to fall in the right direction there. Um, and it's a tough because most people don't want to talk about themselves and things like that. So sometimes you want to preempt that. You want to give that question maybe ahead of time and let them kind of think about it. Because when they start saying, um, you know what, I was in sports, I, I was able to accomplish certain things. So I like military, I like sports, people like that. If they went into college and collegiate sports as well, that was something that showed they got up, they worked hard, they, you know, something like that. So there are some other indicators. It doesn't have to be all sports, it doesn't have to be all military, but those are things that shows discipline in the military space, for example. So there are some indications that I would look at and people would say, you know what? And I had a lot of leaders that weren't military or sports, but they were just phenomenal people. So you have to just kind of look as you go through that process. But those are some things I would look for and some questions I would ask. Dean, yeah. I have a question on the, on my first, I've been doing this for 20, 22 years now, I think. My first broker was, um, you know, old school, you know, his secretary would, would print out his emails, take them to him until, until he, until he died. Um, it was great. But he said also that it's, it's a belly to belly to belly business. Mm -hmm. And for my career, it has been, do you see with the, with the tech and the trends, I mean, technology, we've, we've used technology, I think, wisely since we, we started. But do you see the belly-to-belly -belly aspect shifting away in the next 18 to 36 months in any substantive way? Because we have a lot of stuff happening in our industry right now, and always have been. But you know, now feels a little bit more of an, of an upheaval in a lot of ways. But do you That's see anything at all? Well, I think, you know, that that is happening, like for cloud-based uh, brokerages, for example, and things like that. So there's less connectivity between leadership and agents. And there's some agents who enjoy that like that or are fine with that. Some agents that aren't. I think that kind of falls into the value proposition of an organization. What separates you from others? What is that part of it? So part of it for the organizations that have more hands on the ground, feet on the ground and kind of uh, supporting agents. And that's part of your value proposition. If you don't, then you sell something else, uh, you know, whatever that sale would be in that area. And more and more um, as a total to your question, Jim, uh, agents as a population, as a number, yes, have moved into more of cloud-based, more away from, and also traditional brokerages, the ones I used to run, 
um, for as an example, and, and others out there, and I say traditional, meaning more like brick and mortar commission schedules that are graduated. Not even actually, I put an asterisk on that commission schedule because a lot of traditional brokerages have have adjusted their commission structures. It really depends on the market, so you can find all different things on on commission. But that said, um, you know, so for example, instead of having uh, office at every corner. You know that's gone away. That was like that dissipated back in two thousand and eight and nine and ten. Um, one of the things I share in my personal history, when I started running the Mid Atlantic market, we had ninety over ninety offices, and it ended at thirty six in three to four years. I mean, it, it, so there was a big drop in locations. We were merging locations. We ended up franchising a couple. I mean, just to, getting some inside baseball here. But it was like you were doing things to making business decisions. But really, that's the idea of having a brick and mortar every location. And one of the things that was surprising for the leaders that are watching this, uh, that I was personally surprised on, is we had sales professionals that saw such value in connect in connection. And Jim, this is to your question, had so much connection with those leaders in our organization, they would drive a good distance to get to that next office. So it was, and they had plenty other location, other companies close to them, but they drove another. And one in mind is 16 miles. They would go 16 miles. They would drive by other locations, other companies, and they'd leave their general market and go to another market just to, to continue to stay with that organization, and because of what they felt and the connection they had with that organization. Why? I mean, what was it about that that physical location and that culture there? that you think could be duplicated, replicated, or pushed forward to today's world? It's, it's connection, because the physical location, is, it's interesting, because the physical location they had was something that had been there forever. It was part of the this company that they've been there forever, and it was transitioned through an acquisition into the NRT space. And so we never wanted to leave. I've been in this office for so long. And then when it leaves, then like, all right, what am I going to do when rubber hits the road? Do I want to go work with that organization, this organization, or do I want to stay where I am? And it's not that, and you have to continue as a leader, hone your offer proposition and amplify that and stay on top of that and keep that out front and center. But ultimately they stayed where they were because of level of comfort. They felt that they knew what they knew and they didn't know what they didn't know with the others. And what they did know was not enough to have them move away from what they did know. I, I get it. And that all resonates with me. I, I'm curious of where you see things going, because right now in the brokerage industry, it seems like there's this massive push towards big cloud based. We have this many agents and like that's the pitch I see. I mean, you know, you used to see used to drive by a McDonald's in the 80s and it was like a billion hamburgers served. Yeah. And that was McDonald's at that point. That was their like come to us because everybody else comes to us. And I've, right. I've seen brokerages kind of do the same thing right now, but with big also is kind of anti what you were just talking about of like the, the culture and the, you know, the hand to hand combat of like, I'm a leader and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to coach you and I'm going to give you, I'm going to mentor you and I'm going to help you grow your business. One of the things you said earlier was that leadership supports, supports growth. And I think you were referring to growth of a, of an individual agent. So mm -hmm. what has happened in the last, you know, we'll just call it 15 to 20 years where we've gone from this, I'm going to drive 16, 18 miles to go to a location where there's a leader that is going to help and support me to right now where I'm, I'm seeing this massive trend of like 
just give me this inexpensive option and massive agents and you know no office like what's your what's your take on that so you know a couple of factors there's a lot that that's a it, it, it's a big answer right there's a lot of yeah. things you look at that because the NA, National Association of Realtors expanded. We actually just went through one of the largest growth phases of a, the real estate cycle. So from 2010, 11, when the market started headed back up and interest rates means, as we know, we've heard interest rates are so low for so long. That's just culminated a growth area, growth market for a very long period of time. And so then we also, part of that, then you end up getting 1.2 million agents to 1.6, almost 1.6, like 1.58 1.56 something like that million real estate license real estate NAR members across the country that expansion of that 400,000 give or take um amount of agents came into the industry and so the the cloud-based organizations or the offices that don't if you don't need an office right or the population increased things like that um and it's kind of like we're, we've seen a lot of growth. What happens if you evaluate those organizations, they typically have lower per person productivity. You have a higher agent count, right? But you have lower per person productivity, things like that. So it goes to the, you know, it goes to the offer. Like everyone's not going to want the same thing. This is one thing that's very clear is there's room for all these different models. And this is kind of where you're going, Jonathan, I think. So you have the cloud. Let's move on one side the cloud, whatever it might be. Like you don't need a space. You don't need anything. We don't give you uh, everything uh, over here. Over here, we're going to give you a manager, a, a, a real close support, and all lot of more support trans on the ground locations, things like that, right? And there's disparity, and that's typically there, you people who see the value, can feel the value, and understand the value, and willing to pay for the value. And there's people over here that are not. They're just like, I don't don't need it, don't want it, and it's, I'm going to be over here. The challenge is the people in the middle. So if you're trying to be everything to everyone, then you're nothing. So that's the challenge. It's got to you got to pick your lane and decide I want to be in this lane and this is my lane and I'm going to run the most efficient, effective organization in this area as possible. The folks that are in the middle, that's where they're really getting stuck in between a divide here and say, which way I, you need to go more this way or more that way. You got to make a decision because the middle is not the place to be. So, Dean, you know, I heard a speaker years ago talking about agents who would make moves from a traditional, you know, you had said you were used to recruit at a 50-50 split firm. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think there are very many left at the 50-50 model, but there's still plenty that are traditional, you know, very straight line splits. Um, and this was an individual who was saying, when you're doing the recruiting, you really have to look at your own model and look at the agents and, and the difficulty of moving from one model to another, that it's very easy for somebody in a capped model to go after people who are in a traditional split, uh, you know, straight line type splitting. And that once you go to a, you know, per transaction fee, it's very difficult to get out of that model back into a cap or back into a traditional. So, you know, in terms of, of where the agent direction is, you know, if, if that's true that when agents move from model A to B to C to D, that it's very hard to move backwards up oh, yeah. you know, uh, on that line, where does that hold then for traditional brokers? I mean, are you limited in the number and the type of agents you can go after? How do you, how do you begin showing that value proposition for people who are, you know, pulling from a fixed a very low, a low price point model, right? I mean, these the cloud-based models are 
less expensive in dollars owed to the firm, but that doesn't mean that they're a better value for, for every agent by any means. So how do you start that recruiting process? How do you start talking about your own value? So uh, that's a tougher sale because if you've got somebody who's on a, a low fee, low fixed uh, kind of organization and the idea of coming over here and giving or paying more uh, is a difficult sale. Um, and so, and to your point, it's a slippery slope. Once you go over here, you're not going back. Right. Uh, it's going to be extremely painful and very bloody, meaning bloody in the fact you'll lose a lot of people. I kind of, I'm going to flash it because my mind was jumping when you said this, Keith. If you think of like an acquisition, say you're going to go acquire a company, right? And your model is a traditional model by the definition, commission split, you know, maybe you start at 60, maybe you're started at 65 or 70 or whatever, and you transition up over sales and whatever yeah, it might be. Right. And in part of that, you have a real rich toolbox. You have you have people on the ground to support their business and coaching and managers, leaders, whatever the title might be. And that's that space there. And you're going to look to acquire this company that's down the street, but they're a flat transaction fee organization, sure. things like that. You're going to have a ton of breakage, what we call breakage meaning there's a lot of agents who are not going to go and they're not yeah. going to move over and move to the traditional. So that's something in you think about if I acquire that, I'm going to lose a lot of that. So that goes to the point of a lot of those, those mindsets are in that mindset. I don't need that for whether they do or they don't in their mind. Perception is reality. Right. I and see that question. In, well, in you know, in terms of of talking with our lead brokers and and having these discussions, the thing that I come back to, it's not a dollar value, it's a mindset of the agent you're talking with. And so, once you've gone to, if you're an agent who has gone to a flat fee per transaction fee, it, my finding in conversations with individuals in that position, it's not that they're looking for a cheaper solution; it's that they have already moved away from believing the brokerage model provides value at all, right? Once they've made a move to the idea that it's a fee that they just need to get past, then they've stopped looking for the value. They've stopped looking to see what your toolbox is. They've stopped looking to see what the manager can provide in terms of, of leadership and inspiration and, and what the firm can do in terms of branding and what other pieces. And so, it, you know, it is, it's an interesting question because I do feel like it's see it, it is always about the money, but it ceases to be a conversation about dollars and you're trying to to have a conversation in a different direction that someone's maybe just not even wanting to have. So um, one of the things that's really created clarity in this area for me, uh, and I throw it out to you guys and to everyone watching this, is the teams and how teams operate. So teams we 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 work with a lot of teams very successful productive teams and what agents work uh, why agents go to the teams for the most part are the leads and the support in that order leads mm -hmm. and then the support and in that and it's it, it, you know we're working with a lot of top teams across the north america now and i'm just working through and i just did a call with a bunch of them and it's so in interesting to see new agents, one to three years in the business and over three years in the business, who's come to them, uh, who's who they recruited over the last 12 months and then 13 to 24 months and things like that. And some are positioned uh, into the one, you know, new agent category. They like new agents. They bring them in as sponges. They train them and they 
and it's easier sale on the 50-50 uh, or whatever it is. We have teams that actually will keep 65 and pay 35. So they have a higher churn rate, but they're keeping 65 and paying 35. And their return on revenue is in the 20% range, if not 30. So that is a good business for the owner, right? So in that, so in sharing that with you is there are people who will and see value. The ultimate goal for us in the leadership role is no matter what that sales value or sales, whatever that toolbox is, whatever that position is of the organization, whether it's transaction or plat fee or it's a, a holistic support, you know, I'm here and you've got to have someone who's powerful. This goes back to what I said in the very beginning. You have to have a leader who's magnetic a leader who is strong in, in, in their beliefs and who they are and what they bring to the table and can support it. And you've got to be proactively in the market, constantly talking to people and educating them and supporting them and giving some insight and in how you can help them and the organization can help them in them in their business. And you will find you will find people to success. I had uh, I'll give a quick example. There was a market that there was more cows and people uh, that I used to oversee years ago. And there would be, a, it was way in a rural area. And it's like, why are we even here? I I remember I was driving out talking about going from 90 offices to 36, uh, 90 plus offices. I'm driving to the one office that I'm closing and it's just like all farmland. And you can see this is why we're close. There's not enough houses here to even support this office. Cause you guys know what it runs, what it costs to run an office and overhead and things like that. It's a lot. And so, um, Part of that is when you're going out there and you're sitting there and you, and you start talking to these guys and you start thinking about the the structure of that uh, the company and the offer prop, um, you know, it just makes more sense in an organization whether you you just have to have leaders who are just fixated on their passions. And so I don't know how to say it indifferently. I, I went off on a tangent. I lost my train of thought, honestly. Uh, with you guys, but I was going down. I, I got these far. I got these cows in my head, and I go like, "What was I going to make? What point was I going to make there?" Well, so I mean, it's, it's teams, it's value, it's and it, and I do think it's fascinating that teams are now able to recoup the the split that firms used to be able to procure for themselves, and now it's that you know agents are looking to teams to do the the um, the prospecting the de delivering of the client opportunity and that's no longer really being pointed towards the firm and then and the reality is in turn the salespeople are willing to pay for that service to the teams um, and it's an interesting it's an interesting question as to what the margin becomes for the for the firm who's taking on the legal liability and a lot of the process stuff yeah, yeah so I'd I'd say you know from my perspective we've talked about this a lot I've talked about this with with everybody here is you know, brokerages in any organization need to define, uh, communicate, and then execute on on value. And that's ultimately what it comes down to, kind of going mm -hmm. back to the question of like, how do you get somebody to kind of switch from organization A to B or B to A? If it's less expensive or more expensive, you've got you've to have clearly defined, you know, value and then communicate that and then deliver it, you know, going back almost going back to Dean, your analogy with the headlights here a little earlier, it's like looking forward and saying, this is who we are and this is where we're going. Yep. And that's what is going to bring people in any organization, whether it's a brokerage or a fast food restaurant or a retail store, that's what's going to bring people in to kind of continue to push the, push the company forward. And, you know, Dean, I, I've seen this firsthand with you over the past six years and with you running this T3 fellows program is you 
you get in front of that group of broker owners who um, come from all parts of the country, Alabama to Canada to New York to, you know, Arizona, and, and you're helping them craft kind of their vision and make sure their headlights are, are primed yeah. and, and ready to go. So when they go back to their organizations, they're, they're there to lead the team. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, kind of as we wrap this conversation up, I would love, Dean, to hear from you. Like we're in a, we're kind of working our way in this industry into a little bit of a new world here. And every broker should be looking forward and kind of, you know, surveying the landscape. But from your perspective, what's the number one thing that broker owners and, and leaders and of, of real estate brokerages should be, what's the one detail they should be sweating in, in today's environment? Uh, control what they can control. If we think about reduction in units, the current market, low inventory, high internet uh, interest rates, we think about pressure on commissions, the challenges in recruiting that we just discussed. There's so many things, frankly, that are outside of your control. There are certain things that you do control. And so in those, that's where it comes back to the headlight analogy. Really hone in on your recruiting strategies, on the per-person productivity and the closed units, and what's your focus on list side versus buy side, especially with the, with the lawsuits going on. What do you, look at that dollars. How much money is coming on the buy side commission? Really, you got to move and run down that. Average sales price. Are you pinpointing average prices in your market to get into a higher price point? Commission, what's your average commission percentage? Are you looking at that? Are you paying attention to it? Do you have a strategy to make sure you keep that where it is, if not look to increase it? Um, company dollar, what's your company dollar percentage? You know, and as a and how has it varied year over year? And where is it now versus where it was? And how can you trend that in a different direction or slow it down from going down even faster? And your expenses. This is one of the biggest things. We brought this out in the beginning about financials and finances and things like that. The expenses, what are bucket your expenses? Pay attention to them. Staff facilities, your two largest expenses typically. And then you look at your other ones, your marketing, your lead gen marketing, your technology, your other expenses. What are those? Bucket them. And if other becomes big in one area or another, training or whatever it might be, break it out. Look at it year over year. Pay attention so then you can get in front of good waves and fan those flames if it's good and it's heading in a good direction. And if it's going in a bad direction, then get in front of it and stop it. And the bottom line for us also is return on revenue. What's your profit? And that's a real headlight. That's a light. When I go and look at an organization, one of the first things I want to look at is what's your bottom line profit as a percentage of your total gross commission income? All right. How are you performing? What are the efficiencies that you're currently showing? And then we dissect it and dive into it and find out, you know, let's kind of go under the hood. Let's see what's happening in certain these key areas I just rattled off because you have controls on that. So that's what organizations and leaders should be really doing, because unfortunately, when a market changes like it just happened, and it's going through right now. A lot of people get frozen. They just freeze and like, you know what? I'm just going to keep doing what I've been doing because at some point this is going to change. And, you know, you don't want to sit and wait. And this goes to an earlier point. In the first one of the first questions was, you know, about leaders and who are leaders. Leaders lead. They run into the fire. They're, they're, they move ahead. And just to put a smile on everyone's face, you know, the lead dog has the best view. So get out in front and start running your organization, making good decisions. Think about these key areas I just rattled off. There's seven of them, seven specific areas that you have a lot more control over. And then work on that, whether it's with us in T360, we have a couple of different programs. Jonathan, you know, you've been awesome as an advisor to support us, give some insight to these leaders across North America. 
but really working through a process of honing into key areas of running a brokerage business, no matter what model that you're in, there are key areas of helping to create more efficiency. There's foundational areas. We do three areas of foundation. We do four areas of growth and we do three areas of scale. So we basically foundation what's current and going on. Let's make sure it's rock solid so you can build off of it. Let's grow that business, key areas on growth. And then let's scale it. Let's scale it. And scale could be whether it's franchising, whether it's expanding in other markets, whether it's to going into a, you know into your current market, but expanding into another area in that current market. Whatever it is, that's going to be the scaling your business. Yeah, love it. That that's amazing. And and look, it's great advice um, for all of us to always be you know looking at we, what we can control and obviously paying attention to what's going on around us, but control what we can control. So. Dean, thanks so much for uh, imparting your knowledge on us. We will make sure we put your contact info in our show notes. So if anybody does Great. have any questions about T360 or the T3 Fellows Program, which I can't um, say enough good things about, uh, please reach out to Dean and, uh, and he would uh, love to, to have a conversation with you and help you. But thanks so much for, for being here today. Thanks, Jonathan. Appreciate it. Thank, Thank you, you, Keith. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Awesome. That was fun. If you like this, please take 30 seconds to share this with a friend, rate and review us. If you don't feel like it, that's cool too. We still thank you. We hope you join us next time.